Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another week. Hope you are safe and well. On our program today, growing concerns about dry conditions. I don't know if we want to start using the drought word, but in some parts of the country, they're talking about it. Could it be spreading? We'll talk with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA's Midwest Climate Hub, about that. We're going to take a look at the meatpacking situation as far as the pork industry is concerned. We're going to talk with Joe Kearns from Kearns & Associates, get an update on where we're at as far as working through that backlog of hogs. And Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board, will join us. A lot of concerns in the biofuels industry about now retroactively granting of small refinery exemptions by EPA. So we'll have plenty to talk about with Kurt later in the program. But we're going to start things off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Let's start with an EPA story. Now those uh, groups that that, uh, are challenging EPA's decision to allow use of dicamber products right now that were on hand, those groups are challenging in court and wanting this uh, practice, this use of these products stopped immediately. Uh, yes, and uh, even though the uh, EPA has said it can, uh, you know, it should, they they should be allowed to use the product uh, through the, uh, I think it's through the end of July. Uh, I'd be very interested to see how the court uh, rules on that because uh, the court was very specific that it had vacated the registrations. So I think that is a uh, a, a real test. Uh, and I also uh, just read that the same group of, of plaintiffs that brought the dicamba suit have also brought a suit on Enlist Duo, another uh, herbicide, and the same Ninth Circuit is expected to take that up sometime in the next few months. So it's a real challenge on, the, on these longtime registered herbicides. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, these groups, and they are the uh, North, uh, rather the National Family Farm Coalition, the Center for Biological Diversity, Center for Food Safety and Pesticide Action North America, and uh, they are seeking relief by the earliest possible date. They also asked to hold EPA and Administrator Wheeler in contempt, saying that EPA did not take any reasonable steps to comply with the court's order, only actions to defy and ignore it. Sounds like a protracted court battle here to me. Right, except that the that the the question is whether it can you know whether they could stop application that's going on right now. Uh because what EPA was essentially doing is granting relief to people who were planning to, planning planning to use the product uh, immediately because it was such a shock that the registrations were vacated. So there could be quick action on this, actually. Yeah, well, had EPA, after that court ruling, had EPA appealed and asked for a stay, and that might have given, you know, bought some time, but because of their action to allow use of it now, while at the same time uh, pulling certification of those products, that kind of muddied the waters. Yes, indeed, indeed. There are quite a few questions about EPA's legal decisions, uh, uh, you know, in the last few months. 
Um, the you know they're also their reaction to the court decision on small refinery waivers. Uh, it seems to me it would be a time to look at the legal office of, of EPA and see if uh, if they're making uh, good decisions. Well, and I just wrote a piece on this that AG and EPA so often have this controversial uh, adversarial relationship, and uh, here in, in some ways EPA kind of on the side of ag in allowing the products to be used now but the way they've handled it overall has not really done ag any favors either that's right that's right uh, on on epa another thing i'd like to point out that this week the renewable fuels association for the first time is holding president trump accountable on the uh, re- uh renewable fuel standard and and all those conflicts they wrote him a letter rather than writing a letter to Wheeler, and they're making the point that the buck stops in the white in the Oval Office. So I think Trump's relationship with EPA uh, could be an important issue in the presidential election, especially in Iowa and other ethanol-producing states. It is a point that I've been making for weeks and months, and even longer than that, really, because because this goes back to the Obama administration as well, when EPA was doing things that, you know, kind of opposite what the president was saying publicly when it came to biofuels. EPA back then wasn't meeting deadlines and, and doing things. And, and uh, so it's, to me, this goes beyond party. It, but what it says is we have presidents that basically say one thing publicly and let their agency administrator in this case epa do something different and at some point you have to hold the boss accountable right the president is the boss and if the boss wants something done it would seem fairly simple to most of us you tell your employee this is what i want done uh indeed and i think it's been a problem with epa for decades uh uh, epa uh is in a very odd position uh because it has a constituency that wants the environment protected but there's always uh, industry, whether it's agriculture or something else out there, that does make the case to the White House that this is going to hurt us. And so the EPA just keeps trying to do what its uh, civil servants and and the environmentalists want, uh, even though presidents keep trying to um, uh, rein them in. Uh, it's it's a law. It's, I think it's been a problem ever since the agency was established during the Nixon administration. Yeah, the EPA administrator seems to have wield tremendous power and almost, in many cases, seems like they they can act independent of the administration. But perhaps not. Perhaps the signals are coming from the president, whoever's in the White House, and uh, those are such behind the scenes, not acknowledged publicly. But you're right about the history of this agency and. Uh, you know, I say this all the time. Uh, when it comes to agriculture, agriculture farmers and ranchers get impacted more by EPA than they do USDA. Uh, you, uh, well, yes, especially on you know on the on these regulatory issues, and they have more conflict with EPA. Right. Uh, USDA is usually uh, uh, on their side, uh, but not uh, uh, not EPA. EPA is rarely on the side of of any industry. Yeah, yeah. It seems like 
sometimes EPA, I'll say this, no matter how they rule, they've got somebody against them, but it seems like they keep trying to uh, appease both sides. In this case, it hasn't worked very well at all. All right, Jerry, good to talk with you. Have a good weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Great, and you too. It's beautiful weather here in Washington, so I'm, uh, I'm appreciating it without our usual heat and humidity. All right. Enjoy. Thanks. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. We're going to talk weather next with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. There are growing concerns about growing areas of dry weather. Are we headed for uh, drought conditions in a large part of the country or is this just isolated? What does the pattern show? We're going to talk with Dennis about that next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Pat McGonigal. He is the CEO for the Iowa Pork Producers. What are you hearing from producers? What are their biggest issues? Well, it's a uh, a vast array. Obviously, uh, getting into the market channel to, to processors is a critical issue. Um, obviously, the, the uh, price is a big concern. In addition to that, and our Department of Agriculture here has been very helpful, is producers aren't used to this situation we're in. And we're not the only ones in this situation, but where you have to slow pigs down if you have to have discussions about euthanization. So it's really kind of a counter discussion to what we've ever had. But I, I, I just assure you that it's um, pork producers are doing everything they can to take care of the animals, number one, and number two, move those pigs to the food channel. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the foundation foundation fighting fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 
4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, if you look back over the last, what, year and a half, we've talked much more about flooding than we have drought. But uh, there are areas of the country already dry, and some wondering if that's going to spread. Let's talk about it with Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, good to talk with you again. Are we seeing uh, a pattern of growing dry conditions? Is drought a real concern for the Midwest this year? Well, you know, again, it's location-specific. Um, we have had some periods of dryness in chunks of the Midwest. Uh, mostly those have been good so far, given how wet we, we were coming in. There were big chunks this spring that were quite, they were quite dry, which allowed us to make, uh, progress on planting. So that was a good thing. And then we've had some rain recently. Uh, the most coherent areas of dryness right now, we've got a couple pockets up in northern Minnesota. And North Dakota, where we've got some uh, D1 moderate drought on the U.S. drought monitor, uh, pockets that, are, that have missed out on some of the recent rainfalls. Uh, the biggest area in most of the ag, you know, central U.S. ag areas right now is eastern Colorado, western Kansas, where we're up to D3 on the U.S. drought monitor. Uh, you know, they really missed out on most of their most of the rainfalls, and we've reached a point in the summer where they don't expect to get too much more rainfall. So. Uh, problem there, is it going to grow? Uh, there are some decent chances that, especially the Plains area, uh, the dryness will become more of a problem as we go on, go on over the next several weeks. Certainly going into next week, uh, not a lot of precip and warm conditions. And then there are some hints that, that even after that, getting out into July, uh, we may have some ongoing some of the dryness uh, that will, will worsen some of the problems out there. What about temperatures? I mean, uh, the forecast we've been getting saying it's not going to be a, a you know like a record-setting heat. Uh, so when if it's not super hot, that kind of buys you a little bit of time when you're not getting rain, but only so long. Uh, what do you see ahead there? Um, Temperature-wise, again, that's going to be part of our problem in the plains. Nineties, uh, we're probably going to touch some some maybe around a hundred as you get down into the, the central southern plains over the next week. Um, you know, the, the rest of the Midwest is going to be, uh, eighties and some nineties. Uh, so a little bit warm still for this time of year, not terrible because we've got uh, decent soil moisture for crops to deal with. Um, we are going to get a reprieve looks like in, in like week two, about the third week of June, we will see a, a little bit of break in some of the heat as we get a kind of a, a little cooler push coming down through again. And then latter part of the month, we see that heat uh, come back to us again. Uh, and that's where we're, we're, we're watching to see if that, you know, if, if it's a short-lived or if that becomes a bit longer-lived right now. The models aren't handling that terribly well, and there's some inconsistent messages uh, between the models. When you're looking at potential patterns, develop, like a drought uh, pattern development, what, what are the signs? What are you looking for to kind of give, us, give you a heads up of what might be coming? Um, I won't say crystal ball. <laughs> people think we have those. I'm not going to say that. 
The thing we watch for, and other people have talked about, ridges of high pressure. You know, there's a typical ridge of high pressure uh, that occurs climatologically during the middle of summer, usually. Uh, It comes and goes a little bit. It's when that ridge of high pressure over the central U.S. gets, gets built in very strongly and it's parked there. What that does is it pushes the, or the, the jet stream in, the storm track gets moved further north ahead of that. So maybe the northern plains of southern Canada gets rain, and then the central, central plains, Midwest, all that area is underneath that ridge. You get hot. Uh, you can be humid, but but the way the the atmosphere is, you, you might not get thunderstorms, and 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 you, then all the you know moisture, even though it's moisture around, sometimes you can't get rain out of it. That's the kind of thing we're looking for to see if that ridge builds in and then is able to stay there for a longer period of time. Yeah, well, we we had the storm Cristobal, and there was forecasts of a lot of rain maybe kicking up through the Midwest, and some areas did get quite a bit of rain, but. I'm in an area that didn't get that much, and I know others that didn't either. And then you start thinking, start being concerned, okay, if something like that where it's expected you're going to get a lot of rain out of it and somehow that starts missing you, you start worrying, okay, are we in some kind of a pattern here? Yeah, and and, and there is, you know, there is concern. I've heard that from some other folks in Iowa. They said, you know, we're not really dry, but it just kind of feels dry right now. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it is lo- very location specific because we have places uh, in chunks of Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan that are quite wet right now. Uh, correspondingly, southern Illinois, part of Indiana, you know, parts of Iowa now even showing up as a little bit on the dry side. Nothing serious yet, but on the dry side. So it is really very location specific. You also mentioned crystal ball. Um, you know, it has been a really interesting week from a weather and climate side. Two events that are that, that, that are really not don't happen frequently climatologically in the Midwest. One, the remnants of a tropical storm making it all the way through the upper Midwest. Uh, you know that can happen to Missouri, Southern Illinois, Ohio area, but to get as far north as it did Iowa, even Wisconsin, I think that's the first time we've ever had recorded. Uh, remnants of a tropical storm make it all the way as far as Wisconsin. And then our friends in the Northern Plains uh, a little over a week ago had what's called a derecho. It's a long-lived storm system with incredibly strong winds came across actually out of the mountains and moved across the Northern Plains. That's very infrequent up in that area. So we've had two really uh, climatologically odd events in, in a week's time. So it's been a really interesting week from the weather and climate side. We're talking with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. What about, uh, we've heard projections it's going to be a very active uh, tropical storm hurricane season. What about uh, tornado season, the severe weather? Now, there's been some of that, but how does it compare with other years? Uh, It's That's another really interesting situation because uh, the severe weather activity actually mid-spring, late spring, was uh, incredibly limited. Uh, there was not a lot of severe weather around. Uh, like, the, I, think was, I think the Sioux Falls National Weather Service had mentioned, they went like a month without issuing a warning, uh, which is really uncommon this time of the year. Uh, since then, we've had some very big events, individual events that have produced a lot of severe weather individually. So we, we kind of resurged then. Um, climatologically, we start going through a transition at this point where we can still have tornadoes, 
the tornadoes become start becoming less common as you get into midsummer. Uh, hail is still obviously a, a very uh, is, is, a, is a possibility, uh, and strong winds. Those become the two more uh, more common things at this time of year. And I have seen, you know, there was enough of that severe weather and strong winds and hail in places that we have had some crop damage, uh, also some crop damage from some of that heavy rainfall, too. Uh, getting a little late for some replants, so we'll have to see what happens with those. But, but there has, I'm sure, has been some, some damage that we may not be able to reclaim this year with those events. In agriculture, we tend to compare each year with the previous year. You know, this reminds me of 2012 or 54 or whatever it might be. Does this year so far remind you of another? Does it look similar to another uh, year's weather's pattern, weather patterns uh, that you recall? Oh, <laughs> interesting question. Um, you know, we, we, we sometimes use analog years for, for some of the extremes. Uh, some of the, you know, but if it's not an extreme year, then we start, uh, you know, th- then we start going, then they start kind of running together in my head. Personally, I, I don't like analog years quite as much because they, they you know, if it looks like another year, that can help us describe what, what some of the issues were that year. We also get concerned when we start talking about analog years because we think, well, this looks like, you know, 2014 or whatever, just picking one. Then you start, start thinking, okay, the rest of the year now is going to be exactly like 2014. And, and that's not the case. You know, we, so we can compare to some other years where we are at this point, but there's so many other things that can happen still throughout the year to, to change what's going to, what's going to go on. So um, honestly, I, I don't have a, a comparison year right now. You know, we always, we tend, I, I tend to look at, you know, some of the really dry years, drought years, you know, are we getting setups to that or the really wet years, uh, you know, like the 1993s or some of those. Uh, but uh, right now I, I don't have a comparison year to work with at this point. Um, you know, things are, are chugging along. Uh, we have that, you know, as we started off with some of that concern about drought that is out there, some existing mm-hmm. already, and some possibly developing. Uh, but, you know, right now we're kind of chugging along. We've got a bunch chunk of the air in pretty good shape right now. All right. We'll see what happens. Dennis, as always, thanks for being with us and always appreciate the perspective. Thanks a lot. Happy to do it, Mike. Take care. Dennis Toddy, Director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub, joining us here on AOA. Stay with us. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we're seeing packing plants uh, bouncing back. That capacity is starting to improve, but still we're not where we were. Let's kind of get an update on the pork side, especially with Joe Kearns from Kearns & Associates. Joe, thanks for joining us. Uh, Give us the latest. Where are we on the the hog side as far as packing capacity and uh, what are we moving through now, and are we cutting into that backlog at all? Well, there's uh, two different answers here. As we continue to get just a little bit better, at one point in time we were uh, over 30% idled, and as of yesterday 
uh, we were down to 11%. We've had some fits and starts in some locations, and uh, some plants that we thought were amazingly bulletproof have proven that, no, they are human too, and so they've kind of taken a backward step here. Uh, so there's uh, still kind of a list of winners and losers in general. Uh, we've had uh, a nice steady progress uh, in our estimation is we've got to get to someplace near 95% of uh, effective utilization or 5% idled in order to start to eat into the backlog of hogs that you reference. And that just isn't happening quite yet. Uh, our kills are going to come in hovering around that 2.5 million for as far as the eye can see. And that's uh, going to be what our production looks like. Hogs and Pigs Report will be out on the 25th. That data is being collected both last week as well as this week and will give us a clearer indication on a go forward. But right now we're still uh, uh, holding our head above water if uh, uh, at best in kind of a dog paddle, but I, I'm afraid that we might be sinking here quickly. Okay, let's go over that again, what you just said. Uh, we're at 11% idle on pork packing capacity, and we need to get to at least down to 5% idle before we really start cutting into the backlog. That is correct, yeah. And that's uh, we've got a full regression with a whole bunch of estimates in it. You can challenge any one of them. But that's my best guess right now of uh, if we're going to do the pork production segment any good is we've got to get down to about 5% idle. All right, so what is, as you look at the situation out there, you mentioned some plants we thought were okay, haven't. It hasn't proven out to be that way. Uh, what's the prospects of getting from 11% idle down to 5%? Well, I think it's going to be tough. Uh, there's been some plants that have actually surprised me because they've been uh, at 100%, and I, I truly didn't think that that was going to occur in a uh, post-COVID situation given uh, the, the type of uh, uh, personal protection that was going to be needed and the extra space within the plant. Uh, we've retested some other facilities here recently and um, I've had kind of a bit of a backlash uh, in getting the confidence of the workers in order to show up to ensure their health has been the biggest component. And that's uh, probably going to prove to be a, a fickle component. And, a, and if I had to guess, I'd say my 95% utilization is probably a little optimistic. Hmm. So uh, it seems like, you know, we hear about plants reopening, but then we hear about you know, more positive tests, more positive cases being found in those uh, in those plants. So it, it seems like an uneven recovery that's going on in these plants so far. And, th and that's a fair statement is uh, we will retest, uh, find out some more positives. That'll cause concern amongst those that are working in those facilities. Uh, we've experienced a lot of call in absenteeism, uh, getting the animals run through the turnstiles as far as uh, uh, through the through the initial phase in the packing plant is probably relatively easy. Uh, pulling it out of the coolers and getting it sliced up into the various components has proven to be the difficult piece. Uh, roughly two-thirds of your labor force is on the back side of the cooler, and so uh, trying to get uh, the, the spread between bone-in and boneless product has proven to be very, very sharp uh, just because we don't have the labor in order to uh, kind of uh, uh, produce those products that, uh, that the customer is looking for. Um, and I, I just don't see that just a, a magic wand uh, coming in to uh, rectify that situation anytime soon. We're talking with Joe Kearns with Kearns and Associates. So, all right, so for the producer, Joe, that's looking at uh, trying to market hogs and doing everything they can to slow down, to idle, uh, you know, We've heard about the extreme cases of euthanization. What are they looking at for the next few weeks? 
All right, so let, let's give the devil their due. These nutritionists that we've got in our industry have done an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, I personally didn't think that we were able to slow animals down sufficiently enough, and we've proven that we can make them just plain old stop their growth rates. Uh, so I, I do think that the backlog is still uh, evident. Uh, perhaps it keeps us from ballooning out on weight, anything too significant, which was one of my huge fears coming into this. Uh, but but it, we're still uh, going to have to face some very difficult decisions as a pork production community. Our numbers show us that we're roughly 2.5 million head backed up right now. Uh, and it's going to be a choice for the producer of uh, how does he utilize his barn space uh, by uh, preserving the animals that are currently occupying that or betting on the come with a, uh, a smaller animal that's going to uh, perhaps turn a bit more profit into the future. Uh, th- there's a whole bunch of economics. Here's, here's what I know for sure. We're pork producers. We're not, uh, we're not very good at making a decision to euthanize animals. And if there's any, any signal of hope whatsoever, we'll hold off with that decision. Uh, state of Minnesota has probably been the most aggressive with its uh, market hog euthanization. State of Iowa uh, attempted to address this in a very meaningful fashion, uh, offering funding for up to 600,000 animals uh, to be covered with, the, with some type of payment. Um, and, they, and they've had a very, very limited subscription. About 45,000 is all the, the folk that have raised their hand. And so this is, this is a combination about both economics as well as ethics uh, within our pork production community. And I, I just don't see us uh, getting out of this scenario anytime in the short term. Joe, looking longer term, uh, how do we avoid this? I mean, people said, well, you build more plants, but if you don't always need that capacity, then what do you do with those plants? I mean, uh, what, what, what do you see as the long-term solution to this? Well, certainly the building more plants would allow your current sow base as well as your finishing barns that we have already established to be utilized. And so that's one answer, but that's probably 18 months to two years down the road at the earliest. Uh, the first thing we're going to have to do is, is right size our sow base and our production to fit into this new reality. And if, and if it turns out to be the 95% or 92% of nameplate capacity, whatever those values are, um, those of us in production ag are going to be responsible for producing the amount of animals that flow through that in some type of economic system that makes sense for everybody involved. Uh, I still think that uh, uh, the packing plants are a fine idea, and, and uh, that might be a longer-term answer, but in the short term, i.e. the next 18 months to 24 months, uh, we're going to have to reduce the sow size to meet our current capacity constraints. And just building plants, we still have a labor issue, too. That's that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can build the facilities. Uh, I suppose that if you're you're going to have to, automation is going to play a, a key role in any new plants. Perhaps even the retrofit of some older facilities as time wears on, and that might start to alleviate uh, a bit of our bottleneck. Uh, but I just don't see that as being the salvation. I, I think we're into a new reality. Uh, we're going to feel our way through this uh, as far as an industry is concerned and as far as a society is concerned. Even even the, the types of food that get presented to us. Uh, you know, the, the buffet at the, at the Holiday Inn is probably off the menu anymore. Is, uh, you know, everyone touching the same spatula to, to retrieve their eggs in the morning is probably not going to be the way we look at things. And so uh, getting individualized packing, 
packaging inside of uh, the retail market is, is going to be more pronounced. And so what I'm sharing with you is I see even more labor demand and more diversification of products being offered at a time when we're struggling to, uh, to keep these plants running from an employment standpoint. I, I think we've got a sticky wicket to negotiate here, sir. Mm-hmm. You mentioned buffets. I've been thinking about that, too. I think they'll become a thing of the past. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think it's a shame, uh, um, you know, from a, a risk reward standpoint and the efficiency and uh, uh, waste uh, component, I, I think we're perhaps taking a step back from a societal uh, conservation uh, uh, sustainability effort in the name of safety that may or may not be required long term. I agree with you. We seem to have ha- we had a system that that seemed to work pretty well, pretty efficient, uh, but could not handle something like this. Now, maybe it's not fair to say anything could handle the situation we're in now, but there will be some lessons learned, and, and you said some changes that will have to be made. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. Uh, anybody that's driven in Chicago traffic or a large city, when you're rolling 75 miles an hour and you know maybe a car space in between you and the guy in front of you, and you, and you roll for 20 miles and nothing happens, and, and, and you make mm-hmm. it to your destination safely. Uh, that, that's kind of how we were running. We were just in time. We were really efficient. Uh, and now suddenly someone put a, a crane in the middle of the road, and, and the carnage uh, is still amalgamating. We have not started to sort this thing out quite yet. We are still uh, uh, piling up cars you know, a, a mile or two back in my, in my analogy here. Uh, I still think we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, as an industry, there's going to be lessons learned, and, and I think that uh, those riding without seatbelts are, are going to learn their lesson in, in my, my little proverb here. Uh, but you're exactly right. We were very, very efficient. And I think this is just pointing out just how good we were uh, at just-in-time inventories and keeping the wheels on the bus at a very high rate of, of, uh, uh, of turnover. Of, of product as well as uh, as people moving in and out very efficiently. And this will be a lesson learned. Great perspective, Joe. I like the way you put it. Uh, thanks for being with us. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, I wish we had better news, but I enjoyed the perspective that you've given us and how we look at this and what it's going to take to get through it. Thanks for being with us. You bet you. We'll call them as we see them, and hopefully I'll give you better news next time. All right. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Joe Kearns with Kearns & Associates. Well, up next, the biofuels industry up in arms over the what looks like now retroactive granting of small refinery exemptions by EPA. We'll talk about that with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The battle over EPA's granting of small refinery exemptions to the renewable fuel standard is far from over. Now, the latest issue, retroactively granting these exemptions to refineries. Here to talk about it is Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, uh, it seems like this just goes on and on, and it's bad enough as it's happening, but now to go back and grant even more, that, that just makes it even worse. Yeah, Mike, I'm glad to be with you again. Uh, you know, this is the issue that 
never seems to end. Even if uh, we have a court, uh, 10th Circuit, uh, siding with us and recognizing that EPA illegally granted small refiner exemptions, you know, we that was in January. We thought, well, this is uh, finally we have a court on record uh, telling EPA, listen, you, you can't just greatly expand the program. There actually has to be economic hardship demonstrated, and there has to be an extension of an existing uh, uh, waiver. So we, we thought the issue was settled, and rather than it being settled, we now have uh, what looks like the EPA and DOE uh, working in partnership with refiners to figure out a way to uh, essentially end run this court decision and not only continue the practice of granting the small refiner exemptions, but as you mentioned, uh, retroactively uh, extending them for a handful of refiners. So this this is just an outrage. Once again, it's an effort by this administration to undermine the, the program and to add additional market uncertainty for biofuels producers and the farmers who provide the feedstock for that fuel. Yeah, the court handed EPA the blueprint for how to do this and pointing out what they were doing wrong, and it's just like they've ignored that. They've absolutely ignored it. And in, instead of doing what the court said and apply the finding nationally and for once and, once and for all put an end to the, to the abuses that were kind of created under the previous administrator, uh, they're doing the exact opposite. What, what we learned in uh, hearing testimony before Congress uh, May 20th, both from EPA Administrator Wheeler and a nominee for, for Department of Energy, is that uh, they're absolutely looking at waiver requests that have now been submitted by small refiners for what we're, we're calling these gap years, a period of time, uh, maybe 2012 through 2016 or 17, where they did not apply for and did not receive small refiner exemptions, and that they are now going to apply for them to essentially uh, try to com- comply with what the court said should have been the case in the first place, and that is you cannot extend a small refiner uh, waiver that you don't that doesn't exist. So in order, so in, instead of EPA saying, well, we can no longer uh, consider these these uh, uh, small refiner exemptions if the, you don't have continuity, they're going to try to retroactively grant continuity for small refiners. Now, Mike, here here's the real crux of this issue is you i think we're right now celebrating the or, or marking the one-year anniversary of president trump mm-hmm. being in an ethanol plant in southwest iowa and touting what he has been doing for farmers and for biofuels and at that time it was uh, granting year-round e15 which was a great step forward for biofuels particularly ethanol and and referring to the great american patriot farmer uh that it stands strongly with him well that may be the case and that may be the president's heart in the right spot and wanting to do the right thing but his, his administration and the people under him, the people that work for him and lead these two agencies, surely aren't following uh, his view on supporting biofuels, supporting the RFS, and supporting the, the great patriot American farmers, he called them. As I've said many times, either the EPA is not following the president's uh, wishes or the president is not making it clear enough or not stepping in and making it happen. Uh, somewhere it's, you know, there's a breakdown there or we're not getting the full story. And it looks like as an industry, you're now going to the top here, to the president saying you need to, uh, you know, back up your words and make this happen. One of the frustrating things about this administration is, and if you'll recall going back to last fall when there was a, a bit of a fight over the, of the renewable fuel standard and how to account for these wave gallons, the president himself was uh, personally involved. They, they thought they were, they were in the, the White House 
uh, Oval Office had a deal. They walk out of that room, and EPA rewrites that deal. So uh, the, the question is, how many times do our champions in the Senate and the House need to go directly to the president to tell him, listen, you agreed to do this, but the people who work for, me, for you are not following through on your instructions? At a, at a, there's a certain point where, you know, how, how, much, how many times does a president need to be undercut by his own staff before he realizes that, that people aren't working for him, uh, they're working for outside interests who are, who, are, who are trying to game his administration a little bit. And this is separate from COVID-19. We understand COVID-19 came, you know, unexpectedly, and we know that what it's done to fuel demand and things like that. So that's that's an issue of itself. But we're talking about something here that is directly, uh, you know, at the footstep of EPA or the administration of allowing this to happen with these small refinery exemptions. That's exactly right. I think adding insult to injury would be the best way to describe it. The biofuels uh, industry is suffering in injury from lost demand, uh, market disruptions as a, as, a, uh, as a result of stay-at-home orders and COVID-19. So to have an EPA continually work to insult our industry by even considering handing out these giveaways and undermining the integrity of the program at the expense of, of farmers, feedstock providers, and biofuels producers – it, it's, it's shocking in how brazen it is as an affront to the program and an affront to uh, a constituency that the president says he loves and supports. Yep, the battle continues. Kurt, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. Take care. Always glad to be with you. Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. Uh-huh. You too. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. So this is a this remains to be a hot issue, and it gets even hotter in an election year. So we'll see uh, what the response is from EPA and the administration. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Coming up on Monday, we're going to talk with the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall. AFBF has sent to Congress uh, a list, a wish list, if you will, a set of recommendations of what they think needs to be done in a next aid package, assistance package from COVID-19. So we'll talk with President Duvall about that. We're also going to get a, an update on wheat harvest in Kansas starting to roll now and a complete look at the weather as well. Have a great weekend, everyone. Be safe. Hope you'll join us again on Monday right here on AOA. AOA.